Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Up first on the docket, here's a show from the archives I think you will really enjoy. Let's discuss the case for Killer Book Club. Here's a partial summary from the show page because I want certain details of this story to remain a mystery as long as possible. So here's what you get for now. The idyllic quiet of a picture postcard English village is shattered when a book club member is murdered. But why? Perhaps the answer lies in the trail of writings, diaries, poems, and novels left behind by the victim and killer. And to take your listening experience to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. Here you will see photos of the book club killer, plus images of this truly gorgeous English village. Such a classy locale for such salacious secrets. All right, so Killer Book Club is an eight-part series exclusively available on Audible. It's definitely worth checking out if you're a member. The series is written and hosted by journalist, TV producer, and poetry major Jillian Pachter. And I have some opinions about Jillian. She's top-notch when it comes to selecting interesting topics, and she's a captivating storyteller. This series is a prime example of her talents. However, Jillian also likes to insert herself quite a bit into this story, and I wasn't always finding her super relatable. She's definitely in academia and clearly very well read. Let's just say if you are playing a drinking game for every time Jillian mentioned she attended Oxford University, you would be sauced. That being said, she totally grew on me by the end and now I kind of want to start a book club with her. But before I try and level jump a friendship with journalist Jillian, we have a different book club to discuss first. 
And even though I loved how this case unfolded on the podcast series, I want to tell it a different way and lay things out more like a proper English detective mystery. Our story begins in the winter of 2014 in the dreamy village of Maidsmorton, England. This month's book club is meeting at retired teacher Robert Wilson's lovely English country cottage. The members gather around the table. We have the book club founder and English professor Peter Farquhar. He started his reading circle over 20 years ago, and this chap takes book club very seriously. These gatherings were no time for gossip and frivolity. His book club was strictly for scholarly discussion of highbrow literature. And it was considered quite an honor if Peter Farquhar deemed you worthy to join his oh-so-exclusive reading circle. On top of that, you had to be a member for at least a year before you were allowed to present a book to the club. And that was pending Peter's approval, of course. So no reading of Fifty Shades of Grey or sipping on barefoot wines. This was an upper-classy affair. And next to Peter, we have co-founder Robert, the host for the evening. He's a retired teacher and very close friend of Peter's. He's been a member since 1991. Likewise for member Stephen, who's also in academia, and he's been part of the club since the very beginning. Then we have Lawrence, a former veteran who happens to be very keen on Dickens. Then there's Alistair, who's in his early 30s, smart, handsome, probably the most chill of the group. There's the brilliant Ben, who's only in his early 20s, but finishing his PhD and also looks like he does CrossFit. Next to him, we have Martin, an aspiring magician. Not really sure what Martin's doing here, but he's about the same age as Ben, quiet, stodgy, and doesn't really contribute to the discussion. And finally, we have the newest member and only female in the book club named Barbara. Even though she has two degrees in literature, Barbara is finding this group intimidating and does her best to hold her own. She came along shortly after the only other female member named Satara left the group. More on that later. On this cold, wintry night, the group discusses Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson, a dense, poetic novel about two orphan girls growing up in the American West. The group had a spirited discussion, followed by a home-cooked dinner prepared by host Robert. It was like any other normal book club meeting, but a year from now, one person in this room would be murdered killed at the hands of a fellow book club member, a member who delivered the eulogy at the victim's funeral and was arrested two years later for murder. Perhaps more shocking than this murder is the fact that anything so awful could take place here in Buckinghamshire County, home of the prestigious Stowe School, where many of the Reading Circle members first crossed paths. Stowe is a ritzy boarding school for pupils aged 13 to 18 years old. It was originally an all-boys school, but now it's co-ed. Tuition runs about 39,000 euros or 42,000 U.S. dollars a year. The campus is crazy nice. Picture Hogwarts with a neoclassical twist. 
students wear velvet coats as part of their uniform. And one of the favorite school activities was literal fox hunting, up until the sport was finally banned in 2004. Book club founder Peter Farquhar was an English teacher for years at the prestigious Stowe School. He'd bustle into the classroom with a commanding presence. Former students described him as intimidating, even downright scary. But his passion for literature was infectious. He would present the densest example of poetry and make it a game, dissecting it into puzzle pieces that the whole class would solve together. He could bring ancient texts to life with a theatric flair using his cape as a prop. Did I mention that the professors at the school wore capes? Seriously, he sounded like Professor Snape. And I know Prof. Peter would be peeved at my lack of literary references and chastise me for only reading celebrity memoirs, true crime books, and Harry Potter over and over again. So no, I probably wouldn't have been one of Professor Peter's favorites. No, he preferred students who had high intellect, came from wealthy class families, were well-rounded in their extracurricular activities, such as captain of the cricket team or the rugby star. Bonus points if you attended the Church of England. This seems like an impossible standard to me, but there were definitely students who fit this mold, and Professor Peter focused his attention on his most prized pupils. Eventually, Peter Farquhar takes an early retirement from the Stowe School and decides to make a go at it as an author. He writes a few novels based on his life and reaches out to former students who found success in the publishing world. But it turns out Peter was a much better teacher than he was an author. One Stowe alum named Arvin is now a bigwig in the world of entertainment and publishing. He says he had a pretty cringe interaction with his former professor, claiming that Peter's work was, quote, hopelessly overwrought and downright navel-gazing. Whew, that was way harsh, Arvin. But it soon became clear that Peter's novels would never be picked up by traditional publishers. So at 63 years old, Peter went back to work as a teacher. Only this time, he was in the shadows of his former Stowe School, now down the hill lecturing at the far less prestigious University of Buckingham. But despite failing to become a published author, Professor Peter was happy at his new school and even found a new favorite star pupil, Ben Fields. At age 19, Ben was confident but not arrogant, a brilliant student, well-read and well-rounded. Some might even call him strapping. One of those standout students any teacher would be delighted to have in the classroom. In fact, Peter Farquhar enthusiastically wrote about Ben Fields in his diary, recalling the first day Ben walked into his classroom. This marked the beginning of a years-long, very close friendship. Ben and Peter bonded over books, they shared their poetry and writing with one another, and they connected over their commitment to the Church of England. Ben's father was a pastor, and Peter was an avid parishioner and occasional preacher. So Ben and Peter would attend Mass together at the Stowe Parish Church. But their friendship took an odd turn after Ben graduated from the University of Buckingham. He was hoping to level up and get a teaching gig at the prestigious Stowe School. 
Peter promised he could use his connections to make this happen, but Peter was unable to deliver, and their relationship turned acrimonious. The two even started to swap nasty poetic letters to each other, often in rhyming verse, kind of like when rappers release diss tracks, only take away the dope beats and replace it with aristocratic snobbery. Ben would call out Peter for writing one-dimensional wooden characters in his novels and also accused him of having a creepy shin fetish. Professor Peter would hit back with, you look like a racist and your poetry sucks. So members of Peter Farquhar's book club must have found it kind of odd when Ben Fields became a lodger at Peter's house. I mean, Peter did often have former students as tenants, but to go from writing disparaging poetry about each other to becoming housemates was bizarre, especially since Ben's folks only lived 15 minutes away. And in addition to becoming Peter's new tenant, Ben Fields was also invited to join his exclusive book club. Only one other member of the reading circle knew the truth about the nature of Ben and Peter's relationship, and that was co-founder Robert Wilson. Robert and Peter had so much in common. They were both around the same age, both in academia, and both Christians. Only Robert was living his life out and proud as a gay man. But living this way cost him nearly everything. Robert came of age during a time when it was illegal in England to commit homosexual acts until 1967. After that came Maggie Thatcher's Section 28 law that deemed it illegal for any positive promotion of homosexuality, effective from 1988 to the year 2000. Though gay marriage became legal in England in 2014, the Church of England to this day still sees homosexual acts as a sin. So coming out as gay cost Robert Wilson his religion, his job, and many of his friends. Things eventually got better for Robert, though. He was now married to his longtime partner, and he was able to return to work four years after his firing now happily living life as his true self out in the open. But Peter chose to censor his life. He admitted to Robert he had an attraction to young men. However, because of his strong commitment to the Church of England, he felt it was important never to act on those urges and remain celibate for life. But even though Peter wasn't rocking any rainbow flags, these things still have a way of coming out. There were whispers among students. They'd make sly remarks about Professor Peter giving his favorite pupils back rubs during class. And there was also those infamous spelling test punishments he'd dole out. Peter would single out certain special students for misspelling words and have them come in after class dressed up in their sports uniforms and do push-ups or toe touches. Peter even wrote a novel titled Between Boy and Man. It was a work of fiction, but clearly autobiographical. It was about a devoted member of the church who had homosexual urges and would steal students' boxers, defile them and clean them, carefully ironing them and folding them away in some sort of demented collection. I know, gross. And I thought my binder full of pogs was bizarre. But everything changed when Peter met Ben. 
Yes, they started out as friends, but Peter was attracted to Ben day one, describing in detail his physical characteristics in his diary. Mentioning Ben's svelte physique, estimating his weight, and fawning over his toned calf muscles. Their friendship turned into something more when the two went away on a holiday together. Peter wrote to his friend Robert, saying they cuddled in bed together. However, Peter always insisted that their close intimacy never crossed the line into sexual acts. Peter claimed the two remained celibate and only hugged each other. I don't know what to think of that, and neither does Robert, but Robert did have an interesting take on their diss track poetry. He interpreted these back-and-forth writings as playful, flirty banter, an example of the nature of their shared humor. And Robert wasn't the only person Peter told of his homosexual urges. There was also an openly gay priest named Andrew from another parish in Buckinghamshire County. Professor Peter confided in Andrew and told him about his love for young Ben. One day, Peter asked if the ordained Andrew would perform a secret wedding ceremony for he and Ben. Andrew was taken a bit off guard. It's not uncommon for there to be an age gap in relationships, especially same sex. But Peter was now 68 and Ben was only 23. Andrew decided to meet with Ben first and get a sense of his true intentions. And he was quite impressed with Ben. His love and devotion to Peter seemed real. Even though there was an age gap, Ben was aware that he would most likely become the aging Peter's caretaker. And that didn't seem to scare him away because he had already worked part-time in an elderly care facility and enjoyed the role of nurturer. And so the two were betrothed in 2014. Though no one in Peter's life knew of this secret wedding besides Robert. Members of the book club thought that Ben was simply Peter's tenant and close friend. And despite all the secrecy, this arrangement worked just fine for Peter. He wrote all about the joy he felt sharing his life with Ben. It was an exciting new chapter with the promise of a happy ending. Until things took a tragic turn. Peter started acting strange. Little things at first getting confused, reaching for words, but unable to retrieve them. He started losing things, and his symptoms got progressively worse. Hallucinations, sleepwalking, urinating in random spots around the house. Peter became depressed, his drinking increased, and people in his life started to take notice. There was often wine served at book club meetings, but Peter never over-imbibed. Lately, though, he was slurring his words, appearing intoxicated before dinner was even served. During discussions, he would repeat himself and sometimes was completely incoherent. He started losing weight and could barely complete a sentence. Then came the erratic mood swings. But despite Peter's decline, he refused to stop drinking. Ben didn't know what to do. He wrote about Peter's deterioration in his diary, and eventually confided in Robert, who advised Ben to take Peter to the doctors. Neurologists couldn't find anything wrong, but things only got worse. 
Ben and Peter prepared for the inevitable and did everything they could to help Peter finally self-publish his novel Between Boy and Man. This turned out to be Peter's rock bottom. The book launch was a disaster. First of all, his novel was super weird. Plus, the event was poorly planned, hardly any food or drink set up. Peter could barely write his name for the book signings. The whole thing was utterly humiliating. And shortly after this incident, Peter tried to take his own life by swallowing pills and alcohol. He recovered from the incident, and Ben again brought him to the neurologist. The doctor urged Peter to quit drinking for the sake of his brain. He advised Ben to lock up all the alcohol in the house and keep a close watch on Peter. Miraculously, this seemed to do the trick. Peter made a full recovery in just a matter of weeks. Friends recalled speaking with Peter a month after his suicide attempt, and it was like he was back to his usual self. In fact, he was eager to celebrate his upcoming 70th birthday. But then, on the morning of October 25th, 2015, a housekeeper walked inside the residence at Maids Morton Manor and found a body lying on the floor next to a half-empty bottle of whiskey. The cleaner called 911. Police and paramedics arrived and pronounced Peter Farquhar dead at the scene. He was 69 years old. The coroner listed his death as accidental due to acute alcohol poisoning. Peter's dear friend and devoted companion, Ben Fields, gave the eulogy at his service. Two years later, Ben Fields was arrested for the murder of Peter Farquhar. How do we go from accidental death to murder? Well, to answer that, we need to learn a little more about Ben Fields. In addition to his love of literature and the church, Ben was an outspoken advocate for the Death with Dignity movement, or what some call assisted suicide. After working with the elderly in a nursing home, Ben became disillusioned with the system, claiming that in these facilities, patients had no quality of life and instead were being kept alive for profit. Their bank accounts were being drained, and when they ran out of money, the patient would be killed to free up the bed. Ben goes on to claim that the owners of these facilities were making a literal killing and driving around in Bentleys. Ben Fields would pontificate his beliefs during a sermon at his church and to his best friend and former book club member, Martin Smith. Investigators would later find a book in Ben's possession that was essentially a suicide manual. However misguided, maybe Ben believed in the death with dignity caused so much that he killed Peter out of compassion, knowing that Peter's most prized asset was his mind, and he was slowly losing it. But hold up, I'm getting too ahead of myself. We need to figure out what exactly happened that turned Peter's death into a murder investigation. So let's go back to that night. How did Peter have access to booze? And where was Ben when all of this was happening? 
Well, Ben was supposed to have all the alcohol removed or locked away, but he did have one bottle of whiskey hidden in his personal possessions. Ben claimed it was a gift for a friend. He also told the authorities that he was out that night at a social gathering, and he surmised that the raging alcoholic Peter must have rifled through his personal things and found the bottle of whiskey, then accidentally drank himself to death. But this story wasn't quite adding up because they later found Ben's fingerprint on the inside of that bottle of whiskey. Not enough evidence for the authorities to arrest him, but he was definitely on their radar. Suspicion of Ben was also growing amongst members of the book club. They carried on with their regularly scheduled meeting even after Peter's untimely death. Although they were disappointed that Ben couldn't attend, he claimed he needed to visit his sister who just had a baby. But the reading circle found this odd because previously Ben had mentioned that he had become estranged from his family. We soon learned that Ben really missed the book club meeting that night because he was having a secret tryst with his lover. A female lover who lived a few doors down from Peter's house, and she too was a former teacher and colleague of Peter Farquhar. Her name was Anne Moore Martin, and she was 82 years old. Yeah, and unlike Ben's maybe chaste relationship with Peter, Ben and Anne were anything but celibate. Okay, and this is the part of the podcast series my opinions completely changed towards narrator Jillian Pachter. I originally mistook her scholarly academic approach to this story as kind of a prissy prudishness. But no, dude, homegirl goes into some explicit details that had me clutching my pearls. Seriously, though, I'm a recovering Catholic, and after listening to parts of this podcast, I was like, dude, I might need to go back to confession after this. So I'll try to describe things as PG as possible. Police would later find photographic evidence of the then 82-year-old Anne Moore Martin performing a sex act on the 23-year-old Ben Fields. And yes, the age difference is shocking, but to be fair, Anne was keeping it tight for 82. She was a total Blanche Devereaux. So after my initial shock wore off, I would have totally been rooting for Anne to get her groove back, you know? Maybe it's not conventional, but we have two consenting adults. Anne and Ben bonded over their shared religious beliefs and love of literature. Ben wrote sonnets to Anne, declaring his love and devotion to her. Anne even had a framed portrait of Ben in her living room that she decorated with trinkets and worshipped like it was an altar and Ben was her idol. Ugh, I don't know, man. I'm really trying to be cool and keep it together, but things are getting weird. Friends of Anne Moore Martin think so too, especially after she starts confiding that she's been receiving divine messages from God being written on her bathroom mirror. Messages like, pray for Ben, Ben loves you or change your will to include Ben. Anne starts experiencing symptoms of rapid dementia. She's confused, slurring her words, and hallucinating. Things get so bad so quickly that eventually she's admitted to a hospital, but not before she signed her will over to Ben Fields. 
Anne Moore Martin's niece sounds the alarm after Ben tries to visit Anne in the hospital. Police question Anne and the nature of her relationship with Ben, and she claims that Ben had been feeding her food topped with a white powdery substance. Urgh, I knew it! Ben is a total skis! And now we have a full-blown investigation on our hands. Police search Ben's car in the swanky new flat he had recently purchased in the nearby town of Toaster. Side note, this town is spelled like Towchester, but it's pronounced Toaster. And at this point, I've had it up to here with all this fake, fancy, superciliousness of the English language. Y'all can act all proper, but I know you're secretly trashier than that 90s soap opera Passions. And while I was distracted looking up the proper pronunciation of Toaster, I forgot to mention that Ben had the funds to purchase this swanky new flat in Towchester, I mean Toaster, because he was the sole beneficiary of Peter Farquhar's estate. When investigators searched Ben's property, they came across photographs of Ben writing the messages on Ann Moore Martin's mirrors. They also discovered through phone records and text messages that while he was newly married to Peter, Ben was also dating Peter's former female book club member named Sitara, who was also Ben's tutor. She apparently dumped a journalism professor named Roger Perkins for Ben, and Roger also used to be Ben's teacher. So while he's simultaneously married to Peter, hitting it with Sitara and elderly Anmore Martin, he also had a longtime on-again, off-again girlfriend named Anna. And oh, also, Ben was active on an app where he would trade sexual favors for money. That's just the soap opera stuff. Investigators also found a secret file on Ben's computer detailing dates, times, and doses of drugs he was secretly administering to Peter Farquhar. Drugs that caused his symptoms of dementia and alcoholism. Psychotropics, benzos, bioethanol, protein, and other substances he illegally bought off the internet. On this secret file, they also found writings from Ben where he brags about moving things around the home to confuse Peter. It was the sickest, most depraved form of torture he could have done to this already tortured soul. And the amount of detail and pre-planning is terrifying. Ben had kept a fake handwritten diary that expressed his worry and devotion for Peter and his beliefs about death with dignity. That whole thing was an act. This computer file held the true secret dark thoughts of Ben Fields. Ben wasn't disillusioned with the care the elderly patients were receiving at the nursing home. On the contrary, Ben was the one using them as test subjects, practicing techniques on them in preparation for his bigger marks. They arrest Ben at a literary soiree, of course, but they only had enough evidence to charge him with the attempted murder against Anne Moore Martin. They needed to gather more evidence that proved that Peter was murdered. So Ben gets released, he's out on bail, and decides he wants to join the priesthood, and he also starts working at a funeral parlor, where he'd befriend recently widowed elderly folks and offer them rides home. Ah, such a creep! Police would later find a list of names they believed Ben was potentially targeting. 
Meanwhile, Peter Farquhar's body is exhumed. They examine his brain, liver, and run more toxicology tests. His liver showed no signs of alcoholism, and he had a completely healthy brain for his age. They do find evidence, though, of possible asphyxiation. Okay, in this next part, they don't talk about on the podcast series, I had to do my own Miss Marple-style investigation to discover that that other book club member slash aspiring magician, Martin Smith, well, yeah, you were right. That guy's a total creep, too. He was chums with Ben, and he was shacked up with an elderly woman named Liz Zettel, who was friends with both Anmore Martin and Peter Farquhar. Ben and Martin had recently come into the possession of Liz Zettel's will, and by all accounts, it looked like she was going to be the next victim, until Ben and Martin were both arrested and put on trial for the murder of Peter and the attempted murder of Anne, plus their connection to a string of burglaries around the neighborhood. There was also this creepy thing that happened while these guys were active. An elderly couple named Harold and Elaine Meekin lived a few doors down from Peter Farquhar, and they both recently passed away under mysterious circumstances. Harold fell down the stairs, and Elaine died suddenly while drinking a cup of tea in the kitchen. Both bodies were cremated and their deaths were never officially linked to Ben Fields, but he did admit to stealing a bottle of Drambuie from their home. A pretty sus behavior. So yeah, now Ben and Martin are in custody. Ben is interviewed by psychiatrists and he's diagnosed with either a narcissistic personality disorder or psychopathic disorder. Then in 2019, their trial begins. Ben admits to drugging Peter Farquhar over a period of months, and prosecutors successfully made the argument that the night of Peter's death, Ben Fields drugged him, forced him to drink alcohol, and then suffocated him in his weakened state. And by the end of the trial, Martin Smith was acquitted of all charges, and Ben Fields was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 36 years. The book club founded by Peter Farquhar has carried on though they have more female members now. There are some who feel they didn't get to ever know the real Peter until after his death, but they continue to love him and honor his memory, literary flaws, and all. Man, even after everything, the book club stayed together. That's amazing. I feel like finding your perfect book club is harder than finding a soulmate. I've had my heart broken by some failed book club ships and have been on my own reading solo for a while now. But maybe it's time for me to get back out there, start my own book club, where we read celebrity memoirs, true crime books, and Harry Potter over and over again. What do you say, you guys? Who wants to join my reading circle? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? And that was Killer Book Club. I was totally floored by this one. Like, man, I thought the worst thing that could happen at a book club was that someone chose a stinker for the whole group to read. But nope, this is much, much worse. So tell me your thoughts about today's episode. You can email me directly at Angela at thetruecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. 
Ah, hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we are back. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Mortal Sin. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Don and Nick Hackney are the perfect couple. Spiritual, loving, and devoted to the church where Nick is pastor. When Dawn is killed in a house fire the day after Christmas, the pastor and his flock are devastated. What few knew at the time was the dark prophecy that foretold it. The latest podcast from Dateline and Josh Mankiewicz is about sex, lies, religion, and murder. Dropping down two spots this week, the outrageous, scandalous stuff came out in the first two episodes, and now we are watching investigators put the puzzle pieces together. I'm interested to see where the story goes, but I'm a little worried this story is running out of holy water, and I need more episodes before I can foretell the final fate of mortal sin. At the number two spot, we have Carrie Jade Does Not Exist. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Carrie J Does Not Exist is the story of how one woman who took on over six different identities infiltrated the lives of vulnerable people and lied her way into gaining their trust. This six-part series, hosted by Sue Perkins and journalist Katherine Dankinson, will tell the story of how Carrie built up a picture-perfect persona until she finally got tangled up in her very own web of lies. I am flying through this one with only two episodes left to go. Definitely some Scamanda vibes, but way more of a cornucopia of scams. I think host Sue Perkins and journalist Katherine Dinkinson are doing an amazing job with the tone of this show. Carrie Jade may not exist, but her podcast is top notch. And at the number one spot, we have Witnessed Fade to Black. Here's a reminder from the show page. When L.A. screenwriter Gary Devereaux mysteriously disappears in the summer of 1997, weird coincidences lead family and friends to believe he may have been the victim of foul play, possibly because of his mysterious ties to the CIA. Gary was on the way home from finishing his latest script, which was allegedly going to be based in part on real events that occurred during the American invasion of Panama. And that script vanished along with him and his vehicle. Finally reaching the number one spot this week because this latest episode titled Single White Chase Brandon is a standalone story. You don't need to even tune into the rest of the series to enjoy this one. 
It's all about the CIA's Hollywood Liaison Office, where the agency trades secret information with movie and TV production companies in exchange for favorable edits. And this is a real thing. It's not a conspiracy. It's crazy. And you'll never be able to see movies like Argo, Zero Dark Thirty, or shows like Alias the same way ever again after tuning into this stellar episode of Witnessed Fade to Black. Now for my miss of the week. We have What Happened to Libby Caswell. Here's a rundown from the show page. In 2017, Libby Caswell was found dead in a motel room in Independence, Missouri. Police quickly ruled her death a suicide, but her mother, Cindy, thinks she was murdered, and she believes she has proof the crime scene was staged. All right, I've been seeing this podcast trending for a while now and decided to check it out. But after a few episodes, I'm pulling the plug. The show is in desperate need of an editor and the host isn't always legible. And we're at a time now where I feel like we are so spoiled with a bevy of outstanding shows. And unfortunately, what happened to Libby Coswell is not one of them. And it's going down my podcast queue trapdoor. Find out next week if Witnessed Fade to Black will remain in the number one spot as the series concludes or if a new show will swoop in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast queue, Trapdoor. I'll meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.